Hello guys, I am going to provide you a brief disclaimer here. To be honest, I released this episode originally with a completely different intro, with a lot of dark, edgy, taboo humor. I am not replacing the intro because of that, but rather, I have experienced right now a huge synchronicity related to this episode, and the themes I played around with, the subtle motifs and metaphors I incorporated into this episode all synchronized into something very, very freaky and weird. I am not going to go into it. Those who know, know. This is very fucked up. And those who know may find this episode very fucked up. I want to put it out there that I did not know a lot of things before making this episode. And I was only recently made aware by people who did not even listen to this episode. Completely synchronistically. I am freaked out, guys. <laughs> and this is the most taboo episode I ever made. Those who do not know, good for you then. Just remain oblivious, I guess. But I am putting it out there during this episode where I happily say that oh we should have somebody on the show somebody whose research i admire no not gonna happen and my perspective of their research has completely changed and i'm glad i criticized their research but the researcher i praised in this episode actually listened to the episode and had very nice things to tell me and that i was on the right track and that i should finish the book i was mentioning so without further ado just Let's listen to this <laughs> weird-ass, synchronistic, freaky, very dark and very taboo episode. Welcome to Tracing Owls, your source for the actual straight poop on all things supernatural. I'm your guest, Chris Anderson, but if you went to high school with me, you can call me Shibby. And everybody knows who I am, <laughs> but uh, today I'm going to be a stand-in for Ethan Sereski. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I forgot to ask, do you prefer uh, Darwin or Vuk? My, my friends forced me to just use my real name, so I go by Vuk. Okay, Vuk it is. <laughs> um, Ethan, funnily enough, has known my name like earlier than most people, because you are not aware of this, and mm -hmm. listeners, Shibble here does a podcast, Uncle Monster's Spooky Time Fright Hour, with mm -hmm. his friend Ethan. Ethan and I have been friends for over a year now, and I have been imprinting myself onto your show for quite a while <laughs> yeah I, it's interesting to find out more like he let me know that he had met this guy named Vuk and he was really interested in what we were doing then later on he let me know that he started getting well he put it as getting help in his research from uh -huh. you though i strongly suspect you were just handing him a bunch of show notes and he was reading them oh so how it started and i assume this because ethan is now here i'm guessing he's gonna laugh when he listens to this episode with us i hope so he's very excited to hear it <laughs> yeah i guess that ethan is pretty lazy or forgets that he's gonna record with you if you a few days before recording with you he asks me oh is there a monster that you'd like us to cover <laughs> 
mm-hmm. And then I say, you know, I intentionally pick the monsters for my own reasons so I can kind of fuck with your own show. <laughs> to the man that pulls the strings, the guy behind uh-huh. the guy. So I tell him about a monster and he's like, cool, yeah, okay. And then I send him an email with so many sources, uh, PDF documents, even eBooks with information Mm -hmm. on the monster. And then he does his own research. But I sometimes provide him academic studies and whatnot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it seemed like he was pulling out for a while a lot of resources that I was surprised that he was doing. Like, I'll be honest, when I do research, I will mostly do, I'll just start with the Wikipedia. And then I will just go from there to like maybe two or three other things on the front page of Google. That's the sort of academic rigor that you will find if you, listener, check out Uncle Monster's Spooky Time Fright Hour. And can you tell my listeners uh, something about your show? So it is a podcast about ghosts, cryptids, other sort of supernatural monsters where uh, my old friend Ethan and I, uh, we've known each other for about 30 years now. One of us will research the monster and the other one will not and we'll switch back and forth or I guess sometimes some of us will farm out the research will present it to the other person and neither of us have like really deep cryptid backgrounds it was just something that we both thought would be interesting for us to learn about so we've got maybe 40 something episodes recorded now of us talking about spring-heeled jack or the chupacabra champ the lake champlain monster uh, we did a couple of inanimate objects we did an episode about the hope diamond and one about the bermuda triangle and we mostly just like goof around you know <laughs> uh, yeah but there is something to your show that actually attracted me from the start because maybe you are not aware your show does something very different most cryptid podcasts want to talk about this a very superficially or very like oh is it real or is it not but what Mm -hmm. you guys do is create archetypes out of the monsters in the form of let's say comedic relief in the form of characters Mm -hmm. you personify the monsters and you have wacky zany fun with them so you have this segment story time where the person who is talking about the monster during the episode writes a whole damn story And it's a comedic story. Like, listeners, I told Ethan, and you, Shibble, probably don't know this. I told Ethan, like, you guys should compile all the stories you wrote and and release a book. (laughs) You know, that's something that we keep on meaning to do on the Patreon is to just put together a little chat book and put them together for each season. Part of the tough part is I write all mine out by hand in notebooks. Just that's Mm -hmm. my process. And so I would have to sit and type them up. And I'm always just so lazy about it. Also, like you have other segments like Does It Love, but you started off that idea with Does It Fuck. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I know that there's a cadre or a culture of, of monster fuckers online, and I thought it'd be fun to appeal to that audience to have a segment for them. Those are oh, the yeah. listeners that I want. Actually, I was thinking about interviewing somebody who writes cryptid erotica. That sounds great. I'd love to hear that. I want to seek out an author yeah yeah that would be so great uh, i know during those segments ethan often goes off searching for cryptid erotica to get you to read yeah yeah that's always a fun bit although it's always you know he hasn't done it as much lately i think possibly because he hasn't having as good results and i think mm-hmm. when that segment goes south it tends to be rough <laughs> 
<laughs> well, when I told him to cover the Kasai Rex, and for mm. the listeners, the Kasai Rex is a supposed T-Rex cryptid in the Congo. Mm-hmm. I, I think he needed to find some kind of erotica related just to the normal T-Rex. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sometimes he tries his best and, uh, you know, we go with what we've got. Okay, so the first time I imprinted myself onto your show, mm-hmm. I was urging Ethan to cover the Popobawa. Mm. <laughs> a classic. <laughs> a classic one. I think it's one of your best episodes. Um, oh, thank but you. But I, I am very biased on that. <laughs> That's fair. So I was thinking, wow, how will Shibble react to this? Because you are the moral high ground of your show. I know Ethan has been saying a lot of problematic things, and then you just cut that out. Yeah, it's true. Every now and then he goes too far and, you know, but I don't want to like say, oh, I should stop recording a show with Ethan because he keeps on saying things I don't like because I don't think Mm -hmm. that's a good solution to that. You know what I mean? Like sometimes obviously it's too far and I don't want to put my name on it. For the most part, I want him to like go on that journey journey himself and i feel like we're getting closer i feel like one of these days i'm gonna be like yes (laughs) ethan is not gonna get me in trouble (laughs) ethan is not saying anything that's gonna make anybody mad you know we're getting closer every day Uh, that episode i laughed my ass off as soon as i started it because the popobawa episode starts with a disclaimer where you're just trying to pretend you're very serious and says like you say uh, this monster guy's he's a rapist yeah Yeah. And, you know, and honestly, like, you don't want to bum somebody out about that. That can be the kind of thing that somebody, it's not going to be, they're not going to be in the right headspace to hear it or something. And mm-hmm. you want to be like, hey, I don't want to spoil your day. This this could spoil your day, and I don't want to do that. Okay. So the reason I'm bringing that up now is because I had the idea, maybe today we talk about sociological and cultural meanings of monsters, and that there is kind of a tie between the Popo Bob and some other monsters you covered, um, mm. especially the Chupacabra mm-hmm. and the Pishtako, which was also uh, one that I helped <laughs> Ethan yeah. research. And the Mamambo, which is also one that... <laughs> Ethan did for my suggestion, man. Yeah. So yeah. All right. Great. This is going to be some great. If any fans of my show are hopefully tuning in and enjoy those four, this is going to be like the big crossover. Uh huh. (laughs) Well, that's what you do. Like at the end of every season, you guys have this episode where you are pitting the monsters against each other in a battle royale. Yes. The Kumite. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think it's because one of the first ideas that we had about the show is that we were going to do the fight night segment. I always feel feel like because I'm approaching monsters from a guy who grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons type of perspective. I always think of how they're going to fight. I always think what it's going to be like when they fight each other. So obviously you want to hear all these monsters come back and fight each other. To me, that's a no brainer. And always uh, you start off that with Shaquille O'Neal and how many Shaquille O'Neal's does it take to kill the monster? I I mean, Shaquille is such an icon. Everybody yeah. loves Shaq and everybody knows that he's a huge dude. So I feel like he's such a good baseline. Like what's the strongest dude that everybody knows? Obviously Shaq. <laughs> also, like you're sometimes very concerned with the more spicy jokes that Ethan makes. Yes. And you're concerned that you may get in trouble. But like on your Instagram, I don't know if you saw Ethan puts Shaq's face on every episode, insinuating that Shaq is a <laughs> normal guest of the show. Well, I'll be, if anybody's falling for that, that's going to be on them. <laughs> There's no way Shaq is ever going to appear on our show. Oh, man. 
Oh man. So, but you did have a few celebrities. Can you go maybe into that? It's true. Yeah, we were able to get Ken Sagos from Nightmare on Elm Street Three played King Cade, and we got uh, Jackie Tone from American Idol and Glow, and we got Manolo from a great podcast, Doctor Game Show, and hopefully sooner or later we're gonna get you on there. That's oh, still man. hopefully in the work. Okay, so I uh, actually we were talking about having me on your show, but I can't do the formula stuff man um <laughs> I, I was to host the show present to you a bosnian monster with mm-hmm. my own bosnian cultural contexts but i just can't stick to a formula and i have the greatest burden for me or the hurdle uh, would be to write a story yeah <laughs> because i'm not a creative writer story time is always definitely the part that you're like uh that's that's the part that takes the most work for sure let's do this so uh, your episodes always start with a story time and mm. i have something here that i'd like to read to you because another part of your podcast is horror movies yes yeah the, the i feel like the the crossover there is perfectly obvious yeah yeah and also a large portion of your episodes is dedicated to questionable accents <laughs> yeah yeah it's funny uh ethan always loves my accent work and i always hate his because it always feels like it's coming from a mean place somewhere (laughs) well i thought i should read you this which i have on the screen so this is the synopsis for the movie alien Mm. but from a hong kong bootleg dvd so the english is completely broken (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought because I am Serbian, mm-hmm. I am going to read it in a very Slavic Russian accent. Okay. <laughs> and uh, it may be people would think that I am then appropriating Russia, but we Serbs like to say Bracha Rusi, which means brother Russians, which I realize is a very fucked up thing to admit now in 2022. <laughs> Hey, I've I've got no beef with the Russian people. I I the people are fantastic. I am nervous about yeah, the actions yeah. of their government. Yes, exactly. But also like if we are brothers, then we surely have the right to pick on each other. Absolutely. <laughs> So this is the supposed synopsis of the movie Alien on a bootleg DVD from Hong Kong. And it says, and I'm going to do a Russian accent. Spaceship people get up from sleeping coffin and have eat. Computer woman finds strange noisings on planet and astronauts go to seeing. (laughs) Astronauts find big elephant man who dead then find too many egg. Astronaut is possessed by egg demon, and a new egg demon is come and eat bed noodle. <laughs> I, I can't remember, like, the dude ate some noodles. They were eating noodles on the ship, and then the scene with the bursting. Uh, yeah, that, that they must have. I don't remember what they were eating, but they were definitely in the commissary. <laughs> It's so funny. I mean, this is from Hong Kong, man. I don't know if that's a racist joke, but like the noodle is the thing that they remember from that scene. (laughs) Hey, uh, I mean, and I guess maybe just their dish and noodle would be, I don't know if they have similar words. Boy, who can say bad translator either way. It goes on to say seven friends and cats all try to find egg demon before spaceship go home, but is hard working. Who will life to escaping? Who is bad milk blood robot? (laughs) (laughs) Milk blood robot. Yeah, that's... Spoiler alert. (laughs) 
cream not working because space make death. <laughs> <laughs> now that's good. Someone should just put the poster with that instead of the tagline. Oh man. Also, like I think this is a very good example of what we're gonna go into today because the linguistic and cultural context of a people completely shape the narrative and ultimately the monster in question. Mm -hmm. So if you're reading this with this broken English, this is a completely different movie with a completely different feel, you know? But at the same time, you can see, you still see the the sort of fabula there, you know what I mean? The, the root story mm -hmm. is still in some sense conveyed. And I always think that that's interesting when you look at these different variations. Like just yesterday, we were talking about, uh, we recorded our episode about La Llorona. Man, it took you three seasons to do that. Yeah, well, we tried not to do all the big ones up front, you know what I mean? Like if season one, we did Ness. Bigfoot, Chupacabra, you'd be like, you want to save some of those for later. So we did yeah. uh, La Llorona and to look at the different sort of variations of it sort of regionally to say like, oh, in some she's married to uh, a ranchero and another one she's uh, an Aztec girl. You know, in some she drowned her children and some the children drowned in an accident and some she drowned and some the her lover drowned her. But they all sort of have the same heart of a tragic woman in love with the wrong man whose children died and the details can get yeah. swapped around but to see what stays the same is really interesting I think that's very interesting I also think that the cultural context shapes the maybe vibe someone has from the monster mm -hmm. and then when that is translated into another culture and language then it is completely dissected and then rearranged into something that kind of reflects that new culture as well so like with the chupacabra for example mm -hmm. we know that that the chupacabra started off in 95 in puerto rico yes which is so wild that it was like i was 14 like yeah <laughs> someone came up to me and said you know there's a chupacabra outside it's a monster that sucks the blood from goats and it's got three needle-like teeth you know I mean, what no, there isn't. But people like mm -hmm. grown adults were like, yeah, I never heard of that, but I buy it. Yeah. It is also a very Latino monster. Mm -hmm. It is tied to their culture. But the thing is, Puerto Rico, a lot of Americans forget that they are American. Yeah. Puerto Rico is an American territory, but it is not officially a state. Yeah. And, and it is true that it is treated very, very differently because of that. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, from doing an episode on the Chupacabra, it started in 95 and it it was tied to this idea of the American government uh, performing genetic experiments on Port uh, on the island of Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm or that it is an alien pet that was left there on the island. But it all started because of a series of mass animal slayings. Mm -hmm. They did have in the 70s the Vampire of Mocha panic, which also arise because of a mass animal slaying. Now, I think somebody told me in 95 in Puerto Rico, there was a huge drought. And this may have caused, you know, uh, shifts in the predatory behavior of the normal animals there. So that's why they may have, you know, killed a lot of animals. Makes sense. Um, but the thing is is uh, if this happens. So most Chupacabra sightings are just farmers finding dead uh, livestock in the morning and then assuming that it's the Chupacabra or rather through time Chupacabra became a linguistic meme. Okay. Like you see dead animals and then you say, oh, Chupacabra, because that's the, the word that comes to mind to explain what's 
happening. Just sort of a turn of phrase to be like, oh, yeah, uh, dang, Chupacabra got him. You know, to say, oh, yes. my animals just died, you know? Well, over here, like we use Babaroga, which is actually Baba Yaga, and, uh, as you know, mm-hmm. to explain any any kind of boogeyman, you know? But when you ask somebody, okay, what is a Babaroga? Nobody knows. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But if you were just going in there and giving sort of a surface examination and you heard everybody talking about it, be like, oh, yeah, people over there, they believe in Babaro. Mm-hmm. Well, the main witness of the Chupacabra as an actual creature was Madeline Tolentino. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you guys covered this. It was later established by Benjamin Radford in his book, Tracking the Chupacabra, which I have read like a year ago. Okay. So my, my memory is a bit fuzzy on all that. But essentially, she saw the movie Species. Mm, classic. Classic Natasha Henstridge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in that movie, Natasha Henstridge portrays Sif, which is a female-like alien that walks around in the nude most of the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there you go. There's a movie for you. Boom. Green yeah. light. <laughs> and uh, it's similar to uh, is it Under the Skin, the newer movie, mm. where it's a female alien that wants to seduce men and kill them. By the end of the movie, I remember that she turns into her true form and it's a very uh, xenomorphic. Yeah. It was sort of had tentacles running down the spine, if I want to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Greenish skin. Now, Benjamin Radford uncovered that Madeline Tolentino, that first woman who made the first account of Chupacabra being an actual creature, saw the movie Species before the incident. Mm-hmm. And later on, she did admit that she thought the movie was real. Not necessarily that it's a documentary or or that it is uh, something filmed that is actually happening, but rather that the movie is conveying something real happening in Puerto Rico at the time. Because at the time, there was this uh, social anxiety mm-hmm. in a way over intrusion of the mainland, American government and, you know, like decades earlier, Puerto Ricans had the issue of the American government testing nuclear weapons. Oh, yeah, I'd, I'd have an issue with that. That's understandable. Yeah. And now now there were issues of genetic experiments going on in Puerto Rico. So all this societal anxiety allowed her to think this movie is portraying something that's being uh, that's real. I mean, through the form of a movie. Yeah. But portraying actual social issues that they are going through and that they are afraid of. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Like yeah, the same yeah. way uh, the movie The Siege that, you know, the Bruce Willis movie that came out after 9-11 where the army came and declared martial law in New York City. You'd be like, yeah, no, that yeah. could actually be happening. That could go on tomorrow. You know, it's contemporary. She thought of it as contemporary social commentary. She thought the movie Species. Yes. But when you look at yes. the history of Puerto Rico with being, you know, the nuclear testing, it's less absurd from that point of view. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to make a point of that because most people who go into this topic and find out that Madeline Tolentino thought that Species, the movie, was a real thing happening, kind of misunderstand it and think, oh, is this lady dumb because she thinks a movie is a real thing? No, it's a more of a societal thing. As you said, it is anxiety over a contemporary social commentary. Yeah, like somebody told me that in America, the uh, social group that did the best with masking during the pandemic was, Mm -hmm. and I don't know if this is true, but 
let's say allegorically it is, that okay. uh, black women were wearing masks much longer and, and later than a lot of other social groups in America. And part of that is because mm-hmm. they were getting vaccinated less. And part of that was because there was just a cultural tradition of black Americans being experimented on with vaccines and being like, then sort of rejecting yeah. a vaccine that seemed to be rushed through tests, you know, and could be thought of as experimental. Mm-hmm. For me as a white guy, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I trust the drug companies. I'm sure they wouldn't release something to me that would fuck me up. You know, I know they don't want to get sued by a bunch of people. So I'm sure the vaccine's fine and that, I'll go take it. That actually makes a lot of sense. You you do know about the Tuskegee experiments. Yeah, exactly. Like that's real stuff that happened. You can't call someone paranoid if they're thinking that something that has happened before is going to happen again. You know? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, that brings up now the uh, that you're talking about the social anxiety of black culture. It reminds me of the movie Candyman. Mm, yeah, classic. Yes. And it goes into this topic that we're now talking about, uh, about anxiety over uh, contemporary social issues, sparking the projection of all these issues into a monstrous character. Mm-hmm. Because uh, the Candyman by the end of the movie is kind of, let's say, a tall pie or something conjured by the anxiety of the African-Americans. W- w- is it in J- Detroit, the movie? Uh, it's in uh, Chicago, Cabrini Green, Chicago. Okay. And uh, the character was a black slave back in the day who had a very tragic end. Well, hang on. Ethan will get upset if I don't correct you on this because he is obviously over the moon number one Candyman fan. He was born a free man, actually Candyman, Mm -hmm. under the name Daniel Robitaille and was murdered after uh, his affair with a white woman was revealed. Had his hand chopped off, got covered in bees. Now he's back and a ghost. But the ghost haunts the black community which for me, you know, reading the film uh, serves as, I, I don't like to use the word metaphor, but like the, the perpetuation of black on black violence and violence in the black community, but to recognize that this has its roots in white on black violence and to accept that sort of cultural culpability is, is how I read Candyman. Okay. I, I really like that we went there uh, to convey your own show because your own show is very closely tied to horror movies and monsters as these allegories of social turmoil. Mm-hmm. And a big part of that is uh, my main background academically is in film. Uh, and I also spent 10 years working in a video store. And so my I've got a lot of movie opinions. And so mm-hmm. we try and whenever we want to make me sound smart, we try and work in some movies. <laughs> well, that, that's why I wanted to go into this today. Uh, we both decided, hey, we should focus the episode on the Chupacabra. Mm-hmm. Because in the end, the Chupacabra is something that's sparked from movies, like mm-hmm. from the species movie. But it's... It then spread out through the pop culture. I want to go, so I'm going to hop onto this. Another uh, topic that Ethan covered on your show is the pishtako yes. that I helped with. A, a fat sucking vampire, as I recall. Yes. <laughs> it's a fat sucking vampire in the Andes in Peru, but other uh, cultures have different names for it. There is the Likichiri, and in Spain, there are the Sacamantecas. Mm. I think Ethan went into yes. that. So, th- this is a motif that is present in not just l- Latino, but all Hispanic cultures mm-hmm. of a bookie man that steals fat from people or that steals blood or organs. And usually, this is an other, this is a foreigner. 
Mm. Now, in South America, there is an urban legend of these pistacos, uh, modern urban legends, being uh, what they call gringos or, you know, white foreigners, either Americans or Europeans, coming to their country to kidnap their own people and uh, sell their fat or blood or organs on the black market. Yeah. In that case, less of a monster and more of a thing that could very realistically happen. Yes, but it is still a a monster spawned by society. societal anxieties and then once you have all of this societal anxiety generated you need to focus it on some kind of image or or character and then you spark a monster out of that Mm -hmm. a monster is a lot more i think easier way to Uh culturally instill fear of practices you know what i mean oh yeah monster keeps you away from drowning in the river white people monster keeps you away from white people yes Exactly. But it also perpetuates us uh, being divided in a way. Like if the gringo is personified as a monster and perpetuating this idea, you should stay away from the white man. Uh, Though I do understand that's a very logical and very good thing to be afraid of, but still, uh, ultimately, it keeps people divided. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, it comes down to, I think, it's not a chicken and the egg situation, right? Like we know Mm -hmm. who started causing these sort of problems and it was you know colonialists and it's sort of on them you can't blame you know these native cultures of being afraid of white people so you can't really blame them for sort of demonizing it the 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 yes. healing needs to start somewhere and i don't think it's Oh yeah, oh yeah. I I went into a discussion on where did the road go, a Patreon segment for that show with one of my friends, RPJ, who is from Mexico. Mm -hmm. We talked about how the UFO phenomenon, because it is very much more violent in South America than anywhere else on Earth, Mm. um, how it reflects these societal issues because South America is a continent that has been full of bloodshed throughout the history. The Mesoamericans were killing each other, then they were slaughtered by, by the Spaniards once these countries gained some kind of autonomy, then there were, you know, military establishments killing their own people, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So a lot of bloodshed being generated throughout the years and then this being uh, kind of turned into these monstrous figures. So I wanted to go into this. Uh, the Pishtako okay. is like a boogeyman that steals fat and people are very afraid of him in Peru because in the Andes it's very cold and people need their fat to survive. Mm. But in America, when Americans here of the Pishtaku and you guys made a lot of jokes about this. Oh, this is a wonderful thing. I want somebody to suck that out of me. Yeah. I'm sure Ethan made that joke specifically several times. Yeah. And also, like uh, he mentioned in Supernatural, there is an episode where a Pishtako couple were uh, having this kind of fitness salon or something. So even American media or TV or movies convey these cultural monsters of different cultures from a more American lens. Oh, yeah, definitely. America loves to take literally anything from any else anywhere else in the world and put it through our own lens. It is a complicated uh, habit, I'm sure. But it, mm-hmm. and it's interesting to think about like if someone in who is living under the beauty standards of like the middle ages or, you know, whenever uh, Ruben was painting and the standard when weight was considered a sign of wealth and being able to provide enough food for yourself that you could become fat, that if a pish taco story evolved in that tradition, how what would that look like? 
Yeah. Yeah, I did not think about that. And this idea of weight being a sign of prosperity and fitness and health is prevalent in African cultures as well. Mm, yeah, I'm so. very interested to find if there are some uh, legends associated with that. Yeah, if they have their own fat-sucking monsters, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but speaking of Africa, we're going back to Zanzibar in Tanzania to the Popobawa. Mm. So for the listeners, I have mentioned the Popobawa a few times and I want to dedicate a whole episode to the Popobawa. Yeah, but, it was a really interesting one. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought it was a great idea to go into this with Shibble because Ethan did not properly convey some of the cultural context there. No, no. Yeah, you've been telling me a little bit more <laughs> about it and it's been very interesting to, to learn this little bonus knowledge this extra layer yeah and also like there is a tie between the popobawa and the chupacabra a very synchronistic weird tie so the chupacabra being inspired by the movie species was uncovered by benjamin radford Mm -hmm. in his book tracking the chupacabra the popobawa and its origins and modern cultural use is covered in another book called popobawa tanzanian talk global misreadings Mm -hmm. Global misreadings. That is a jab. Uh huh. And it is by Katrina Daly Thompson. And I think she is a linguistic professor in Tanzanian culture. Mm. Now, the thing is, Benjamin Radford actually investigated the Popobawa in, in, I think, in 95, the same year that the Chupacabra stuff was starting. Mm -hmm. He investigated it originally because it reached Western media as, oh, people in Zanzibar, Tanzania are afraid of a bat-winged, cycloptic, monster, cryptid, whatever, that is raping men. Yeah, and was allegedly, as I recall, the ghost of a president? Ah, well... That's something that is more cultural-logical related to their history. Makes sense. It, it is not something that reached the Western media at that time. So the Western media thought, oh, people are seeing a monster and it is raping men. Yeah. And uh, Benjamin Radford then went on to travel to Tanzania to investigate and kept asking random people, oh, do you know about the Popobawa? And like, nobody knows anything. And then he got, got the conclusion like, oh, this is some kind of media thing or whatever. This has nothing to do with their culture because I went there and nobody is talking about it. Got it. He thought it was just something (laughs) mimetic in the media, but not in the people. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, Katrina had a lot of uh, criticism to convey towards Benjamin Radford. And in her book, I did not read the whole book, Mm -hmm. uh, but like I searched now in her book, I have the book, Benjamin Radford. It appears a lot of times and there is a whole chapter dedicated to criticism of his own research and investigation into this. So what she conveys in the book, and again, I did not read the book because I'm saving it for a whole episode, but essentially, the Popobawa is a linguistic meme, not a cryptid, not a monster that people are actually seeing or, you know, whatever. Whatever Americans want to think when hearing about cultural monsters, it's always, oh, it's a flesh and blood creature. It's mm-hmm. a monster. We need to go hunt it down. It is a cultural meme that is used predominantly in the LGBT community there because over there it is illegal to be gay. Mm. And in order for gay people to talk about gay sex, they need to kind of watch out how they 
talk about it. So they use Popobawa as a cultural, as a linguistic meme. Like a slang term sa- almost. Yeah, to safely talk about gay sex. But also women over there who are the victims of sexual abuse mm. use the Popobawa to more openly talk about these issues without bringing up that they are victims of rape or bringing up who raped them because over there it's a very patriarchal society and a very And I know, remember that thing. being one of the wasn't one of the details about the Popo Bawa that if you didn't talk about it it would come back. Yes. For a long time I thought hey is the Popo Bawa Tolpa because it tells its victims you need to tell other people about me or I will come again. Mm-hmm. I thought wow is this a Tolpa that wants to perpetuate the belief in it and spread it out throughout the people because the more belief it has the more powerful it is like Freddy Krueger in the Elm Street movies. Yeah yeah or uh boy who else was out there wanting Candyman certainly had his congregation mm-hmm. that's a, that's a classic horror trope of you know the more believers yeah. you got the more powerful you become uh, so so essentially what I want to say is Benjamin Radford went there uh, though he is not a believer he is a very hard skeptic that debunks monsters mm-hmm. but the thing is the American culture appropriated the Popobawa and turned it into a more of a cryptid sort of thing mm-hmm. and then he read the American stuff on it or the British stuff on it and thought, well, I'm going to go and debunk this monster, but there is no monster. And even the culture there does not perceive it as a monster, technically. Yeah. And it's always weird to me to get like very self-serious about debunking monsters because Mm -hmm. like, obviously there's no monsters. Like you don't need to prove to me or to like any serious person. I think that there's no monster going and debunking (gasps) monsters has to be like the most. How dare you, man? silly thing that you could be doing with your time. If you believe in monsters, you need to prove that there are monsters. Until then, it's pretty much assumed that they're not. Okay, well, uh, I I wouldn't say that my listenership now <laughs> hates you because my listenership are, you know, people who don't take monsters too literally. Yeah, but... And but I, the cryptid community will go after you, man. <laughs> look, I mean, I, that was putting it a little bit too strongly, and, and for sort of the official opinion of my show, or our show, is, you know, that it doesn't really matter. We're, we were officially agnostic on the existence of monsters. That's why, even though we have this segment at the end of the show, is it real? Because it feels like you sort of have to ask that question. It's also sort of the most boring question you could ask about a monster. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, it yeah. doesn't matter if it's real. What matters is what people think about it and how it the idea impacts our lives or just what's cool or what's interesting about it, you know? Exactly. Exactly. So I, I don't go on podcasts which are, I don't guest on podcasts which are very generic in the sense that they're going to ask me, okay, so what cryptid do you think is real? Mm -hmm. Okay, first we need to define what a cryptid is and what reality is. Yeah, yeah. Is it real as in, like, linguistically real? Like, people are actually talking Mm -hmm. about it? Like, we discovered about the Popo Bao in Tanzania. Is it real? Like, I could walk up to it and touch it? There there are Mm -hmm. lots of different ways that things can be real. And I'd say that something that is a linguistic meme is definitely real, but not in a material sense. In a cultural sense, it's sways culture, it sways thought. It influences people, and if something is influencing people, then it is 
real, but in an abstract sort of way, just like language, just like art, literature, horror movies, your favorite thing. <laughs> now, uh, now you said that Ethan said, and I'm presuming he said this from your research, that the Popobawa tends to become more prevalent during election cycles. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is this is because it is possibly perpetuated by the political system over there, which is very conservative mm. to scare away people that uh, gayness is bad and that they should elect those who are against LGBT freedoms. Makes so they sense. perpetuate they perpetuate the Popobawa as being a monster that is raping men so people may be kind of swayed into thinking that gay sex is bad so you need to elect the officials who are against that. Yeah, it literally demonizing gay sex. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And in a very literal sense. Yeah. Because Popobawa is essentially a gay sex demon. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. No, no. I, I edit everything. Okay. Like, I edit the breaths out. I edit if you say two words at the same time, I edit that out. Yeah, I'll, I will be <laughs> sounding more eloquent in this episode than I have in oh, ages. I, I make every guest sound very eloquent. Maybe I don't even cut this out. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It's always good to give them a little peek behind the curtain, I think. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So what I wanted to say, uh, there is an irony to this, this flame war going on between Katrina and Benjamin, mm-hmm. because Benjamin Radford approached the Chupac Cabra the exact same way as Katrina Thompson did the Popobawa. Mm. <laughs> but Benjamin has a cultural context for the Chupacabra. I think he is half Latino. I cannot uh, appropriate him. Yeah. Uh, Benjamin, if you're listening to this, if you want to come on my show, hey. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's set the record straight. That's all we're asking. <laughs> Well, Benjamin is actually a very, very good researcher. Mm -hmm. He went into the same things with the Chupacabra, and we're going now from Popobawa to Chupacabra again. So he uncovered that Chupacabra is also a linguistic meme in a way. Mm -hmm. Uh, The name Chupacabra, I think Ethan said on your episode, was coined by a radio DJ who is also a comedian and musician. Yeah, which I just, I love that. (laughs) Right off the bat, it is solidified in a name that sparked as a joke, as a tongue-in-cheek thing yeah in his book he presents a lot of cases from contemporary latino culture not american but latino Mm -hmm. in various different latino countries of how they perceive the the chupacabra and it is always some kind of tongue-in-cheek character or a comedic relief or something like that you know Mm -hmm. like somebody found finds their ghost dead ah it's the chupacabra You know, yeah, yeah, just a just a general e- exclamation almost. Oh yeah, and there are a lot of uh, sideshow displays that display like a chupacabra, but what they are actually displaying is, let's say, a coyote with mange uh, that is taxidermied, mm-hmm. or some kind of plastic figure or uh, or a deformed animal re- remains, or even uh, Jenny Hanover. I don't know if you know what that is. It's a skate, uh, a skate like a ray. Uh, oh, okay, uh, the fish, but it's dried up and then it is molded into some kind of a humanoid monstrous oh form. okay yeah i love fake taxidermy of monsters mm-hmm. you know like uh sewing a monkey to a fish to make a mermaid this one isn't taxidermy, but i always love the pig-faced lady the uh the shaved <laughs> bear in a dress who would work at yeah. a circus <laughs> Also, like you guys did the Jersey Devil, and you know that somebody back then hoaxed the Jersey Devil in a sideshow by painting a kangaroo green and gluing wings on it. Yeah, yeah. And, (laughs) boy, 
Just great stuff. Oh, the jackalope. The, the, mm-hmm. the classic jackrabbit with the antlers. I should do an episode about oh, the yeah. jackalope one of these days. I am actually going to do a, an episode on the jackalope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just a, such an interesting little fun creature. Yeah, yeah. And it has... Okay, that's the irony of this, because I wanted to go into... When the uh, chupacabra reached America, it got a much more darker undertone and much more literal one. But then again, you have the jackalope, which is a completely American invention mm-hmm. and is very tiny in cheek and essentially how Americans treat the jackalope is how Latino culture treats the chupacabra. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. That's a good metaphor. But when the chupacabra crossed cultural borderlines into America. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden we're like, they think it's real. Maybe it is real. (laughs) Who am I to question these people? Uh, There's also a huge debate in the crypto community about the Texas chupacabra, which you know probably is a coyote with mange. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, appropriating the name of chupacabra, this is definitely not a chupacabra. But the thing is, you can go read Benjamin Radford's book, People Who Want to Say That Texas Chupacabra is Not a Chupacabra. Nobody knows what a chupacabra is, because even Benjamin went to different people and different sources. Everybody had their own separate vision of what it is and what it looks like. Yeah, it is more of a linguistic meme that spreads throughout culture. It is a word, we're a word that you associate with dead livestock, like a boogeyman. Mm-hmm. If I ask you, tell me what a boogeyman looks like, you have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Because it's a linguistic. Yeah, no, yeah, that that's an an interesting way to yeah to to combine the boogeyman and the jackalope into one thing is I think a good way of understanding what the chupacabra is. Exactly. You don't really <laughs> think either of them are real, but they're just sort of cultural concepts. This ties into the mamlambo, which is another creature that I got. <laughs> Ethan to cover on your show. I just like r- rubbing that in because you are not even aware of this. No, I knew that he had a research <laughs> assistant and I knew that he was pulling out a bunch of monsters that I was surprised because mm-hmm. like I said, I grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons. I always loved comic books. I always loved horror movies. I was always sort of interested in monsters in a very broad sense. And so I was surprised that Ethan was pulling out ones that I hadn't heard of. So it makes more sense to me now. <laughs> That he was, you know. And it's so funny. So the last time he asked me, he wasn't even trying to hide away his laziness. He told me like, dude, I need to record in two days and I don't have a monster. I don't know what I'm going to do. Tell me a monster. (laughs) And then I said, how about the Preta? And the Preta is a Buddhistic hungry ghost that is condemned to spend eternity with an insatiable hunger for shit. Yeah, it was a great episode. I'll give you that. It was a good direction appointment. I thought, man, I keep on adding these weird and very offensive and questionable monsters to your show, but it goes with the theme because you guys uh, turn monsters into com- comedy relief, however horrifying they may be. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it shouldn't be. I feel like if you are taking cryptids and monsters and ghosts so seriously that you can't laugh at them, then you are taking them too seriously. Exactly. And the Latino culture was exactly doing that with with the chupacabra. They were treating it tongue-in-cheek, laughing around it, Mm -hmm. you know. And then it goes to America where it is appropriated in a very different way because it reflects American society, which is more, you know, strict and defined and darkness and edginess. It's true. It's (laughs) We're very violent people. And in America, the chupacabra became just a mangy dog 
dog that is killing livestock and is something that we need to go hunt down. Yeah, yeah, you got to go get your guns. We need an excuse to get the guns out. And it is uh, exactly, it exactly is a chupacabra. Chupacabra is a linguistic meme that reflects the cultural understanding of what the linguistic meme means. Mm -hmm. So if you're calling a mangy coyote a chupacabra, it is not technically appropriating what a chupacabra is because that is a term that is used to reflect the contemporary society of where it is used. Mm, yeah, it's just, yeah, this is the American variation of a, a chupacabra. Uh-huh. You know, it's just a different species. <laughs> I, 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 I find that very fascinating. I find it fascinating that language can be an entity that evolves and diverges and adapts in different cultures and reflects the cultures. Yeah, and, and you can see that mutation happening in our lifetime. Do you know what I mean? It's not like a, a loan mm-hmm. word that was sent across languages 300 years ago it's it's yes yes something that we're seeing happen in real time and i do believe like that language that ideas and concepts and linguistic means can be somewhat uh, biological entities or okay sociological entities they are organisms that adapt and evolve just like biological organisms but biological organisms live within a scientific material objective reality and their evolution is very slow you know takes millions of years Mm -hmm. But with linguistic memes, it takes only years for something to completely diverge, evolve into new forms. And as you are saying, we are seeing that through our lifetime with, say, the chupacabra. And we're seeing it now, I feel like, even more rapidly happening. You know, this was back in the 90s when word was getting out by, you know, morning radio DJs. Whereas now Mm -hmm. you can have monsters evolving on the internet. Like if you look at the more recent phenomenons, two episodes that we did, Slenderman and uh, Mm -hmm. Cyrus. Head, both starting out as sort of creepypastas or an illustration and being somehow forming their own mythology around them within, you know, a few years to people, you know, literally mostly teens and, and tweens believing that these are real actual things. What's uh, anagogically real, I want to say. Okay. Um, and I'm not 100% clear on the term anagogical, or, but like they're things can be literally real they can be metaphorically real and mm-hmm. anagogically real is things being i want to say sort of spiritually real like catholics believe that the communion becomes the body of christ not in the sense that you know if you were to take a dna test you could of a piece of host you would be able to get jesus's dna but spiritually it is jesus christ and it's it's not a metaphor because it's not like it's not actually him but it's not literally him it's spiritually him it's an anagogical truth to believe that these things are anagogical logically true. I like how you say that because there is this uh, notion within Protestants or otherwise non-Catholics of, oh, those Catholics think, uh, you know, wine is the blood of Christ, like they're kooky and wacky, but it's completely missing the point. Yeah, yeah. It's not literally drinking from a cup of blood that used to be wine a couple minutes ago until we did a magic ritual. It's it's a more, it's a spiritual truth. Okay, so I want to go to the Bamlambo then. Okay. I don't know if... Ethan properly convey this because you did have a guest on the show, so it was much more open-ended and fun, you know? Yeah. He did not go too deep into this. And uh, to be honest, there is not much depth known about Mamlambo because traditionally in... Hossa culture. I don't know how to do that click language. Oh, that's all right. But, uh, I, I think as long as we admit that we're not going to try. Uh-huh. That's, 
<laughs> so the, the that culture from South uh, South Africa, the Mamlambo is a goddess of the river, mm-hmm. uh, often associated with snakes, and she can bestow good luck upon you. Okay. But throughout the cultural bastardization of Africa by white imperial bastards from Europe, mm-hmm. uh, all of this history has been forgotten, erased, or uh, rewritten by Europeans. Now, I wanted to do an episode about Mamlambo with another podcast called Legendary Africa, mm. because the host of that podcast is half South African and half Indian, and she is from South Africa. Interesting. Yeah, and she is also a linguistic academic. She's doing a PhD now, so she could uncover more maybe information, traditional information on Mamlamba. Mm. Yeah, no, that, that'd be great to know. Yeah. And it yeah. is interesting that, yeah, obviously when you have this violent outside source that's looking to sort of demonize the local and dehumanize the local population, to to say oh now they're not with you know worshiping a river goddess that gives you good luck they're worshiping some sort of snake horse fish monster that sucks mm-hmm. the brains out of your skull yeah. yeah oh now now they seem you know barely human and the thing is in 97 i believe when there was there was an event where like nine people were found dead on the banks of the river mm-hmm. and their faces were eaten off possibly by crabs mm. uh, since the river is associated mythologically with this river goddess this news hit the western media and these cryptid nuts constantly look for news like this to prove the existence of monsters in other cultures Mm -hmm. yet the other cultures don't say oh it's a monster but it's a spiritual entity or a goddess or something you know but no the cryptonauts get a hold of this information and say oh there is a river monster called Mamlambo that has the head of a horse and the body of an eel or whatever and it's eating brains from people And then trying to debunk a monster that was never a monster to begin with. Yeah, that sounds like that ought to be a pretty easy one. Uh, Some dude that isn't even from around there just made that up. Also, like, you know, you know, Josh Gates uh, and Destination Truth. Uh, One of his episodes in the first season was actually going to the Mizantlava River and seeking the Mamlamba. See, (laughs) and those shows are always so wild to me because I'll only ever see them like if I'm in a hotel and there are reruns on the History Channel. And I always think, why would I ever watch a rerun of a show where they're like hunting for Bigfoot? If they found Bigfoot, Mm -hmm. I would have found out by now. I'm not going to find out from a rerun from season three episode two of bigfoot hunter you know what i mean there there is something i i want to point out to you so the uh, show monster quest which is also a very kind of crappy cryptid show Mm -hmm. and people will hate me for saying that but it was very sensationalistic let's say they did uh, discover the giant squid during the filming of that show yeah yeah, and I'm not going to say they're not going to... And that's something very interesting. I'm not going to say that no one's ever going to find something. I don't want to be a hater like that. If you think these guys are going to go out and they're going to find Bigfoot, I don't know, maybe. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know what's out there. I don't know everything. But I'm going to just say, if they found Bigfoot, I would have heard about it. I'm not yeah, going to be finding yeah. out about it, you know, two years after the fact in a rerun. Yeah, um, I, I find it very, que- very questionable and very offensive that Americans perpetuate a traditional culture and spiritual belief. Not not tr- uh, perpetuate, appropriate, sorry. Oh, yeah. Cultural traditional b- belief and form a monster out of it and then say that monster is traditionally there and believed in. Yeah. But the monster was formed in America, not over there. And then you introduce the monster over 
there. Then you go over there and try to prove the monster real, which you made up and brought with yourself. <laughs> yeah, we are always trying to export our unique American derangement. <laughs> It is a huge problem with uh, America as a cultural hegemon. <laughs> hey, listeners, I thought it is just the perfect time now to take a breather and listen to a little skit I did for my old podcast, Darwin's Deviations, titled Tale of the Gulu Kanga. Because I have wanted to post the skit on my new show, Tracing Owls, for quite a while now, and now is the perfect time because this little skit perfectly conveys what we are talking about here. Also, it may be perceived as very questionable and offensive, but what I was trying to offend here is Americans who go to indigenous lands, appropriate their culture, and introduce monsters which the natives don't even believe in. And just to make sure that what you are about to hear is not overly questionable, I had my friend from Legendary Africa listen to it, and she thought it was amazing. She laughed her ass off. She loved it. And she said it perfectly conveys in a very satirical manner and a very dark mirror image of the cultural appropriation of the African continent by white imperial bastards. So, let's listen to this quick little skit. In a faraway planet of name undisclosed, of tropical rainforest jungles composed, with dense vegetation, you cut it with panga. Come face to face with beast Kanga. This beast, very rare, never seen by the locals, but known by imperial and foreigner yokos, who spend all their money on grand expedition to hunt down this beast, this dumb superstition. little skeletonized boy, have you seen the Google Kanga? Mister, I don't know what that is. Here's a picture of a dinosaur. This illustration is from 1920, and this is a totally accurate zoological interpretation of what real dinosaurs look like. Have you seen this? I do see the drawing you're showing me. Oh, so you have seen it. Mister, I haven't eaten in 20 days. No worries, child. I have come to save your village. So you've brought food and medicine and clean water. Nonsense. That's normal plain stuff everybody has. I've come to save you from the menace that is Google Kanga. Mister, my mom was so hungry she tried to eat me. Blasphemy. Poor child. Your mother succumbed to the influence of Google Kanga. My mom died yesterday. She is in peace now, child, free from the control of the Google Kanga. She is in God's hands now. Which one, mister? We have five. Oh, such savagery. As soon as I kill this beast and become rich, I'm sending all of your villagers their very own copies of the holy book. Mister, can I have that apple? Nonsense, child. I need this for my expedition. This is very serious work. If we help you kill this animal, can the village eat it? No, child! I'm bringing it back home with me! I'm taking it on a world tour to show everybody how right I was and how cool I am. Mister, I know how to capture this creature. You do? Yes, mister. This Google Gagala likes to eat apples. <gasps> this is a scientific breakthrough! My village has been taming this creature with apples for centuries. Such miraculous innovation in animal trapping! 
If you give me that apple, I will tame this creature for you. Here, little boy, take this apple. Hey, wait. Hey, are you going towards the Google Kanga? Little boy, where are you going? This scene is not questionable because I never defined where and who. These characters are of a completely fictional non-human race in another fantasy world on another plane in another dimension. No human would ever try to eat their child during famine. As you saw just now in this tale of allure, monster stories are only a heap of steaming manure. You visit far lands, bother impoverished folk, who just play along, fill your ass up with smoke. Cause if you seek beasts of indigenous places, you are a privileged and ignorant racist. Hey guys, just putting this out there just so you know, Shibble, I think, did not even listen to this little bit, uh, skit, whatever, so he does not know what's going on. But I decided to go back to the conversation right at this point when he says what he's gonna say now because I thought it is so silly. So don't think that Shibble approves the skit I put in. Maybe he will approve, maybe he would say, no, I don't want my name associated with that. That skit is completely me, and boy am I conveying Ethan in a very, (laughs) very fun way. I try and make America look bad on an international level at every chance I can, so that everybody knows that we are idiots and they don't listen to us. Well, good. (laughs) I mean, you are a postman. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I do not speak on behalf of my work for the U.S. government. I take my job very seriously. But as my job as a podcaster, I will say I am proud to make America look stupid. Oh, yeah, you do it via the podcast, so you do not need to do it via work. Yeah, yeah. And the post office doesn't need my help looking bad for the public. We, uh, it's it's a rough job. I asked you the other day. I don't know if you want me to cut this out now. I asked you. So does the word postal come from post office? And it definitely does. Like going postal. Yeah, there there was a rash of mass shootings at post offices, seventies yeah. and eighties. Yeah, but luckily we've uh, really improved our mental health resources for all our employees. Anybody can get free therapy, and you can even get paid to go to therapy. Mm-hmm. Also, I. Re- realize now we have been shitting over America throughout this whole episode and yet you are an employee of the American government. Hey, the US Post Office actually has the highest approval rating of any government agency. Wow. And and people actually really think the post office is not good at its job. So it's telling about what we think about the rest of the government. Mm -hmm. Also, I wanted to go into, let's say, what inspired you to start your own podcast from the perspective of movies. Like, how did you get to cryptids at all? Because you both bond over your love for horror cinema. Well, you know, it was back in the pandemic started. You know, Ethan and I, we had been friends for ages and every like couple of years, he would call me up and be like, hey, I got a project for you that we should work on. Hey, I got an idea. But his ideas were always like, we should start a reality show where I get celebrities to shoot you with a gun. And I'd say, I don't think we can do that. I don't know how to do that. So the ideas would sort of peter out. Or I would eventually start saying to them, okay, why don't you get started? And then I'll jump in when you have a little bit going. Eventually I said, okay, well, I got an idea for you. I'm looking, I was thinking about starting a podcast and you're always looking to do a project with me. 
don't we do this? There's here's something that we can actually do and accomplish ourselves. We don't need to raise money. We don't need to go pitch anything to anybody. We're not going to be able to make a living off of it, but it's a project that we can have fun doing. Then we had to figure out what we we're going to do a podcast about. My main podcast that I've been listening to up to that point, I was listening to a lot of true crime podcasts. I thought that if we were to do something like that, there'd be too much obligation to the truth. It would just be too hard to do. Exactly. That's why I stopped doing a science-based podcast, even though it was a comedy podcast, because if you're talking about science or true crime, you need to be, you know, very scientific and... Uh, yeah, you, you have an obligation there. Convey facts. With true crime, the obligation is towards the victims and their families as well. So it's a very unfortunate situation for you. Yeah. And that just frankly, knowing that I wanted to start off with something easy to do to actually get done, because it's so easy to like get an idea for a project and then never actually do it. You know, I wanted to make as little hurdles to actually getting it done as possible. So I thought if we're doing something about monsters, I've always thought monsters were interesting. You know, I've always had a lot of monster related interests. So let's get something going with cryptids and ghosts and demons and whatever, anything that somebody would fight on an episode of Supernatural, pretty much. And let's just do a show about those. And then we don't have as much obligation to tell the truth because there is no truth there. It's just stories. We'll just be making up another story. So that's, you know, how we arrived at this subject matter, I think. Okay, so you are completely uh, skeptic towards the idea of cryptids and monsters. I, I'm i not putting you at the spot because I am as well. Yeah, I, like I say, my opinion is very much agnostic. I really, like, I would be surprised if I saw a monster somewhere, certainly. But, you know, I'm not going to say, oh, nothing can ever happen because I, I don't like to talk in absolutes. Do you know what I mean? I always like to hedge my bets. I, I am open to the fact that I don't know everything. And also, I didn't want to, like, alienate mm-hmm. listeners because I feel like a lot of people who are going to be listening to a cryptid podcast are going to be people who believe in cryptids, people who believe in ghosts, people who believe in aliens. And so I just got to say, you know, hey, I don't want to be disrespectful to you and what you think. You're not going to change your mind because of what some idiot on your phone is saying. So, you know, let's just say it is what it is. And we'll just talk about the part that we both think is cool, which is the story about it. Well, I think that's the beautiful part. I don't know if you're understanding where I'm coming from here. I I also don't think monsters are a real physical thing. But I do think they are real mm-hmm. in those senses that you portrayed. Um, I didn't don't I don't remember the word you used. Uh, uh, anagogically word. real. Anag- so I think monsters are anagogically. Re- Man, I think we are totally misrepresenting that word. I need to. Yeah, look we it should up probably after the show. look it up. Users before you <laughs> listeners before you use that word in a conversation, look it up. But for the purpose uh-huh. of this conversation, we'll say that anagogically real means spiritually. Real. Well, th- that's why I wanted you on the show to talk about these monsters because you have a more sociological perspective when i ask you do you think cryptids are real i don't just mean physically real but do they influence people do they inspire people i personally don't see monsters as something negative i see them as sources of inspiration and creativity like kind of muses that exist parallel to us but in an abstract dimension okay here we are uh the anagogical is a method Mm -hmm. of mystical or spiritual interpretation of statements or events especially uh uh, scriptural exegesis that detects allusions to the afterlife. Yeah, it's a, a way of understanding things on a mystical or spiritual level, as opposed to yeah. a literal level or a metaphorical level. Hmm. I, I think I should be using that word more then. Yeah, I think I think it's a really useful way to be able to understand things. Mm-hmm. 
because you you meet so many people uh you know mm-hmm. who you consider to be sort of rational people and then they'll get into these hyper online atheists and people like that who just don't understand that they're talking at cross purposes to somebody that and that there are more types of truth okay that's what i was asking you so i'm not asking you so do i think that monsters are are real in that sense yes okay do you i was asking do you uh, see a value in studying monsters even though they are not materially real uh i think there is a, a value there in that i think they are sort of interesting and i think interest in life is valuable uh and mm-hmm. i think that there there is a way of, of gaining understanding of the people that are talking about these monsters i think it's dangerous when you st- try to plug it down to sort of just one thing you know you have to be open to when you start talking about different ways of understanding things that there's you can't funnel it all into one neat definition you have to accept that it's going to mean different things to different people at different times yes you can't when you get stuck to reading things as metaphor then you just sort of okay god i feel like i'm i'm stumbling over myself so much i apologize to you in the editing booth (laughs) we were talking about uh the movie Candyman, uh ethan and i i was talking about the iconography of b and bees as drones and drones as slave. And he's like, oh, yeah, but how does that work as a metaphor? It's like, no, 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 no. You're overthinking it. It's not a metaphor. It's not like a cryptogram where you need to say like A is C and B is J and you unlock it by thinking about things that literally it's just a connection, just a theme, a a light motif, you know, just something Mm -hmm. that informs you, but doesn't necessarily have a, you know, A is B meaning. Well, I'd say also like maybe Candyman then is an embodiment of slaves because he is filled with bees. Yeah. So that metaphorical context as well. Yeah. But if you get it, you you try and nail it down too tight. Like um, I heard somebody use a metaphor of like holding mercury in your hand. If you squeeze Mm -hmm. your hand too much, it'll run out through your fingers. But if you just hold it there with your hand cupped, you know, it'll stay there. You don't want to squeeze it too tight. Okay. That, that I, I believe dude, that's very beautiful. Oh, thank you. (laughs) that you said that but also um so what i am trying to do i, I don't know how much of my podcast you listen to but what what I've i do to, here, i think i want to say six episodes so far okay so you probably saw see that i am trying to portray the value of monsters as societal cultural historical and personal reflections of ourselves mm, absolutely yeah i i think that's definitely a good lens now how does this how is this conveyed in horror cinema let's go into something that you can oh, sure. Just talk about because I've been blabbering on for over an hour now. Well, well, you know, if you want to talk about specifically, I'm trying to think of specifically cryptid movies and not just because obviously, you know, monster movies, the classic example I think of monster movies as reflections of societal anxieties. Vampires have always been serving as great reflections of, you know, societal anxieties. And if you look at Dracula, you could read the Bella Lugosi to Dracula as dealing with anxieties about immigration. Whereas if you look at the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula, you could see that being uh, more about anxieties about bloodborne disease and AIDS. Those, and not to say that either those are definitive readings, but you can see how they inform both of those films. Or even if you look at the movie, My Best Friend is a Vampire and Anxieties about Teen uh, Homosexuality and all these sort of ways of using vampires to reflect anxieties of the time. It's very interesting to me that one monster, the vampire, can convey so many different societal issues depending on the contemporary historical time period.
period of when it's used. Yeah. And, and it's tough to say, you can't pretend that we now are objective. Are we projecting our readings of what we think they would be reading at the time? Uh, but I think that these are at the very least valid jumping off points and all art can be read in, in so many different ways. Once again, I don't like to close my fist like that, but to, to hold lots of different readings and simultaneous and even, you know, contradictory ideas about how you can interpret art, I think are always valid as long as it resonates mm-hmm. with you as a, a viewer. You see, I remember, let's say the blob from the fifties. Mm. It is a very nuclear atomic period type of movie, you know, mm-hmm. the fear of a, a nuclear war, the fear of uh, aliens invading earth, whatever. Mm-hmm. But then if you look at the remake from the eighties, it is more related to military government experimentation mm-hmm. in a way, even though the blob there is still an alien. Yeah. You can see, I remember there were more sort of like collaborators there. And yeah, there was, mm-hmm. there was less the vibe that the military was going to come in and take care of the blob at the end of the movie. They were going to come in and that was going to be their own problem. Uh, and then you'd have to be dealing with that and the blob. And then you have the stuff which goes into many different <laughs> directions. Yeah. The stuff, obviously, uh, <laughs> anxiety about modern food. Consumerism. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. consumerism. And I think it, it is really interesting to see how, you know, in horror remakes, how they evolve and change. Like if you look at the Nightmare on Elm Street remake uh, that they, or the reboot that they did with, uh, oh, what's his name? The guy that uh, played Rorschach. Did Rorschach, yeah. Um, that they decided to amp up Freddy Krueger being a child molester, which is just a horrible artistic decision. It made the film much less enjoyable to spend mm-hmm. more time with a child molester. But wasn't he already a child? I mean, he's a child murderer in the original series, but I always found it very icky that he became a pop cultural icon in the 80s, mm. but as a child murderer. Yeah, that was is um, a pedophile. That was a problem that Wes Craven had was uh-huh. uh, he didn't want there to be sequels to uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, not just because that meant he had to change the ending of his first film and make it less satisfying, but also because he felt that that means your recurring character is going to be a villain, which means your audiences are going to be coming to see the movie for the villain, which means to some extent they'll have to be identifying with or rooting on the actions of a villain. So they would have to be supporting evil acts. And that was what he didn't want to see happening. He wanted audiences to be rooting for the hero and not the villain. Also, uh, that is kind of mirrored in a very different way with the Jeepers Creepers series, because I see people who support that series as supporting a pedophile child molester. Yeah, absolutely. Because, uh, for those who do not know, uh, what's his name? Uh, Victor Salva. Victor Salva. So he uh, he is a convicted child molester mm-hmm. and he is the director behind Jeepers Creepers. Yeah, it is. And he directed that film after he was convicted, which is so yeah. wild to me that he was able to get work again. It was such a different time in Hollywood than I did. Do not watch Jeepers Creepers. Not worth it. Don't put a dime in that man's pocket. <laughs> I like you guys uh, used to do on Instagram, like, uh, what is a one minute movie synopsis? Mm. And you did one for Jeepers Creepers and the whole minute was don't watch this movie because a pedophile directed it. Yeah, it's just like, it's so wild that it's still out there. And people talk about cancel culture, but obviously it hasn't come for Victor Salva as hard as it could because you can still find Jeepers Creepers on broadcast television. Is is that because um, the horror community is already a marginalized outsider, so nobody is putting their lens over the horror community? I think that's part of it. I think the fact that Victor Salva is not really like a name 
Do you know what I mean? He's not, mm-hmm. it's not like we think of it as Victor Salva's Jeepers Creepers. Uh, yeah. And and he hasn't done that much work since, uh, you know, I think has also let it sort of slide under the radar and that his crime was sort of, uh, I want to say late 80s when he was filming a movie called Clown House. That That's when he actually did the crime. He molested one of the child actors of that movie. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely bizarre that he was allowed to be back on set. It was a different time. I don't necessarily, well, no, I do blame the people that made a movie with them. Yeah. Don't watch Japer Scrapers anymore. It was fine. You've seen it. You don't need to watch it again. And if you haven't seen it, it's it's just watch Duel. Watch Steven Spielberg's Duel. And then imagine the guy in the truck is like a monster. I want to ask you, so when we're talking about Wes Craven, you know that he started his film career with Last House on the Left. Mm-hmm. And that was a very controversial movie it is still a very controversial fucked up movie when you look at especially through the lens of modern society back then it was a different time Mm -hmm. the whole movie is about rape yeah a rape revenge movie a genre that has thankfully fallen by the wayside and a remake Mm -hmm. of an ingmar bergman movie oh yeah the the virgin spring Mm. yeah i i watched that one i really like yeah i did not really like last house on the left uh, although Mm -hmm. it has a great trailer i will give it that i did not like how let's say the there was a lot of comedic relief in a movie that is talking about such subjects and portraying it in a very graphic fashion and even during the assault scene he he decided to put music that's kind of a a love ballad or something i thought that's such a fucked up decision yeah and it's always tough to tell whether or not it's a fucked up decision that's fucked up in the way that he was intending or not Mm -hmm. like is he trying to make this more uncomfortable for me by doing that but then at the same time i don't like to get too caught up in you know the the prison of authorial intent what wes craven wanted to do is important but what it's actually doing is more important to me and yeah the the rape revenge genre is always such a bummer it and it's you know does this tie back to elm street too maybe and the controversy surrounding that film because uh, the first film you introduced the character of freddy which is essentially a child molester a demon uh, listeners we're going into this because we talked about popo bow a lot in this episode yeah it all, it all ties in <laughs> yeah it all ties in well and what was funny was up until i want to say in the original run not nightmare on elm street 5 it was very it was much more subtle that freddy Krueger was a child molester you could easily mm-hmm. be forgiven for thinking that oh this was a guy that just murdered children but it was also never like they never showed scenes of him attacking children that weren't okay. the teens in the film like he was never attacking a 10 year old whereas when you got to the reboot you got the feeling like they're really hitting home that this guy was killing and touching 10 year olds and it was just it was too much they tipped it over the line I think there was a better way to handle it and I think the original franchise did that but I think also there's just a lot more contemporary anxiety about child molestation you know not, which is not to say that it wasn't something that people worried about in the 80s but it's something that people are much more worried about now and you can see that in all sorts of anxieties in like the QAnon sphere about you know an elite yeah. cadre of pedophiles running the country also uh, why I mentioned Elm Street 2 is because in that movie movie it kind of amplifies this idea of freddy being either a sex demon or the result of sexual conflict in a way because that movie itself it has a lot of lgbtq undertones Mm. which were not made very obvious at the time because i don't know if you are aware you probably are the main actor of the movie was closeted at the time and the producers decided to make the whole movie about that subtly in order to 
make a laughing stock out of him or something. Yeah, he apparently had a really complicated relationship with that movie. Uh, I don't know all the details, but I do know Nightmare on Elm Street's two's uh, take on sexuality is different from the rest of the films, certainly. And it definitely had a lot more, once again, not so much like to say, like there wasn't a metaphor there or, you know. It's not saying like being gay is like having Freddy Krueger inside of you. Like that's not what that Mm -hmm. film is saying, but it was just a theme, a light motif of homosexuality running through the film. And to have the closeted actor have to be in that situation is certainly fucked up, (laughs) man. (laughs) I like how the Popo Bawa just seeped into this, this conversation we're having now, man. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that it does all come back down to gay sex demons. It was inevitable. (laughs) But the thing is, like, I intruded on your own show by imprinting myself the first time by inserting the Popo Bawa mm-hmm. uh, into it. You personally had uh, quite a troublesome time with it. Yeah, no, I was <laughs> definitely trying to make sure that we navigated some landmines, uh, especially uh-huh. uh, we had our, our first season episode, The Goat Man, where it was the first time that I had to bust out the rape trigger warning on our show. To be honest, uh, no, nobody talks about the goat, goat Man as a rapist. That's something that I learned from your show okay in the cryptid community everybody wants to talk about it as oh it's a cryptid out there oh well watch out there might be more to it allegedly i don't know where ethan's sources (laughs) were And once again, that's one of the nice things about doing a show that doesn't necessarily have an obligation to the truth. Our show is a story that Mm -hmm. is taking the form of uh, something that you might think of as true. Okay, but I I see this episode now we're doing, like, I am bringing up the Popobawa PTSD in you now. (laughs) I have you at the spot. And then we go into a discussion about your most favorite horror franchise, Elm Street, and I make it all about sex demons and and molestation. Just going to be tap dancing through landmines. Nothing I can't handle. <laughs> well, I, I love I love seeing how you tap dance through that because you, you're you a very adaptive guy. I, I love listening to your show because of the, the jokes you make on the fly. You know, it's without any planning. It's just so organic and improvisational. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Luckily, yeah, Ethan and I have been joking around together for 30 years. And so we knew that we had a really strong rapport that we could lean on. Yeah. So... <laughs> You know, it's a, it's a nice resource to be able to bring to a show. <laughs> also, I think Ethan now is laughing his ass off listening to you tap dance to, through these themes of sex uh, gay demons. Yeah, it's, he gets to see someone else put me on the spot for a change. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, th- that's what I'm trying to convey. I, I am the surrogate uh, Ethan of this episode. Oh, for sure. <laughs> oh, well, I wanted to know just in terms of you listening to our show, was there anything that you heard about from the first time from us? You seem like such a well-read guy. It'd be nice to know if there's anything that we surprised oh, you with. Oh, yeah, definitely. So I got into your show when you did the Penangalan episode. Oh, I love the Penangalan. I did not know much about it. Oh, yeah. Okay. You can tell the listeners what the Penangalan is. The Penangalan is, is a, a Southeast Asian vampire and there are ladies who they detach their heads from their bodies and the heads fly around but they have all the internal organs hanging from the neck and then the internal organs are prehensile and they are said to mm-hmm. soak their organs in vinegar to shrink them down so that they can then put them back inside their bodies yeah that, that's such a fucked up thing yeah and it's such a creepy image and it's so unique you never see that anywhere else I learned a lot from your show because of 
of the fact that you guys are not staying true to the truth in quotation marks, because there is no truth. You take a more sociological approach and you uh, allow yourselves to go into wacky zany adventures where sometimes you guys actually do make connections that normal people in the cryptid community do not, because the cryptid community is like a bubble, you know, it's like an echo chamber. Mm -hmm. So they're closed off from a lot of ideas that may actually connect to the monster and its sociological value. Well, yeah, sometimes all you need is a fresh set of eyes. Someone to come at it from yeah. a different perspective. I never heard before of the Shirika Panda. Oh, yeah, you yeah that was that. an obscure one for sure. Uh, the Shirika Panda is a Jewish demon that is a uh, three-foot-tall lion that has basically is called the Demon of the Privy. It's a, a demon that just has a lot of rules that it wants to follow you, wants you to follow when you're using the bathroom. Like, you mm-hmm. need to go in the bathroom alone. Otherwise, it's going to curse you. You need to make sure if you're having sex, you're going to do it more than a mile away from a bathroom. Otherwise, it's going to give your children epilepsy. If you're too loud in the bathroom, it's going to give you a heart attack or a stroke. First of all, that is really funny. And second of all, it was a, a good inroads to talk about Jewish demonology, which I thought was a, a fun topic to learn more about. Oh, yeah. And you know, in Jewish culture, the idea of keeping everything kosher. So this bathroom etiquette is a part of this kosher stuff. So I could imagine that they did conjure up, let's say, a demon as a character who would punish you if you do not keep your bathroom habits kosher. Mm -hmm. Because as you said, like we use monsters to, let's say, save save a village of children from drowning and stuff like that. You need to sometimes scare people into... Yeah, yeah, because you tell a kid, don't go swimming, you might drown. They say, oh, I'm a great swimmer, I'm not going to drown. You tell a kid, oh, you know, don't go swimming, there's a monster in the river. They say, oh, well, I might be a great swimmer, but I can't take down a monster. There is a yokai, I can't remember its name now in Japan, that is known as the bathroom liquor. Mm. And it licks your bathroom and toilet clean. But the thing is, I also think the Shirika Panda and this yokai uh, sparked from the same human need of maybe... The need to keep your bathroom clean to avoid getting dysentery? Yes, yes, exactly. Exactly. So how do you explain to people who do not know what a bacterium is, uh, why they would get dysentery? You tell them, oh, you need to keep the bathroom clean or you're gonna attract demons in the bathroom. Yeah, and and once again, to understand that as an anagogical truth, that dysentery is a manifestation of a demon, it's spiritually true. Like, if someone said, you know, if I got a bad gut disease, I could say the Sharika Panda got me, you know what I mean? And Oh, when, when I was going into yokai, I discovered that in the 1800s, when there was a cholera epidemic in Japan, mm-hmm. they fabricated a completely new yokai that essentially spreads cholera. Mm, yeah, you gotta explain it somehow. Yokai's as good an explanation as any other. Yeah. 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 So, uh, for the end, can you tell the listeners where they can find you? Maybe share your Patreon because there's some cool stuff there. Absolutely. Yes, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Chris the Friend. Uh, you can find our show Uncle Monster Spooky Time Fright Hour on Twitter at Uncle Monster Podcast, and you can find our Instagram at Uncle Monster Six and our Patreon at Patreon.com/slash Uncle Monster Six. And yeah, you can listen to our shows uh, at uh, just search for Uncle Monster Spooky Time Fright Hour on your preferred podcast provider. We should be on there, and if you check it out, I know I'd appreciate it. I- I always wondered why Uncle Monster 6. 
I had Ethan set up our social media accounts and Uncle Monster was taken. And I don't know why he didn't check Uncle Monster podcast. So he just was like, oh, Uncle Monster <laughs> 6, that'll work. Oh, man, that's totally Ethan. I, I love the dynamic between you guys. Ethan just does what he does. Yeah. I, oftentimes very unplanned. And then you need to tap dance around that. Yeah. Yeah, if I'm a long history of ours has been me apologizing for Ethan. <laughs> but I love him to death. He's honestly the sweetest guy in the world. I uh, obviously and 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 funny as hell. I'm I'm lucky to work with him. Oh man, I had so many funny conversations with him throughout the year. So, uh listeners like go check out Uncle Monster's Spooky Time Fright Hour. I'm going to link everything in the episode description. This is one of the first podcasts I have started collaborating with, uh chatting with constantly with Ethan and uh been listening to and binging since they started. So, I definitely re- recommend it if you are open to the more humorous uh aspects of monsters. Oh, thank Thank you so much and then thank you for no having problem. me on it's been a lot of fun <laughs> thank you likewise so until next time bye bye guys bye